When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A few countries are already administering third COVID-19 vaccine doses to vulnerable populations, and talk has turned to wider rollouts. We ask whether these booster shots are justifiable epidemiologically or morally, given how few have had even one. And there was plenty of enthusiasm for this week's exhibition games in America's Major League Baseball. But the national pastime is clearly in decline. We examine why so few young people go to bat for it and what's being done to bring them to the plate. First up, though. South Africa continues to experience its worst violence since the end of apartheid. Motorways have been forced to close, and ambulances and telecommunications towers have been attacked. Businesses have been widely looted, and some of them burnt to the ground. I saw the place engulfed in flames. My livelihood has been taken away from me in my eyes. I was sitting crying, helpless. With the country's largest oil refinery shut down and farming and commerce at a standstill, there are very real fears of shortages. At least 72 people have been killed and more than a thousand arrested. Over the past few days and nights, there have been acts of public violence of a kind rarely seen in the history of our democracy. In a public address this week, President Cyril Ramaphosa called for peace. There is no grievance, no any political cause that can justify the violence and the destruction that we have seen in parts of... The sheer scale of the unrest makes it hard to pin down a single cause. But it all began after former President Jacob Zuma was imprisoned for failing to testify in an inquiry into dodgy dealings during his tenure. The protests exposed divisions in South Africa, political, ethnic and economic, that Mr. Ramaphosa had been trying to heal. And now they threaten the power of the state. Violence is still ongoing in parts of South Africa. John McDermott is our chief Africa correspondent and is based in Johannesburg. In the province of KwaZulu-Natal, there are still reports of looting and vandalism and arson going on. 
And here in Johannesburg, while things are quieter, there's still a lot of tension in the city. And what is it that's kicked off the violence? When we last spoke, Jason, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the sentencing of former President Jacob Zuma by the country's constitutional court to 15 months in prison. And that was for his refusal to appear before a judge-led inquiry into the vast corruption that took place during his reign from 2009 to 2018. On July 7th, after a lot of legal wrangling and political obstruction, Mr. Zuma was finally taken into custody. Very shortly after Mr. Zuma took his place in his cell, you started to see the first incitement of violence by people close to the former president. His children, for example, have spread provocative messages on social media, and his official foundation has repeatedly called for his release in order to stop the violence. Mr. Ramaphosa hinted at this in a televised address on July 12th. At the beginning of this unrest, there may have been some people who sought to agitate for violence and disorder along ethnic lines. It was a veiled reference, but the president was suggesting that Mr. Zuma, who belongs to South Africa's largest ethnic group, the Zulus, was using ethnic nationalism and his allies were using ethnic nationalism in order to foment some of the violence. In addition to this incitement, there are also credible reports that people close to Mr. Zuma may also have been involved in the instigation of the violence itself. And so all of this then is, it just comes down to Mr. Zuma's supporters wanting him released? You have to remember that the ruling African National Congress party is deeply corrupt and deeply divided. Under Mr. Zuma, a lot of people made a lot of money through corrupt means. And those people, whether through fealty to their so-called king or because they just see that faction as the way to get jobs and contracts, don't like the reign of his successor, Cyril Ramaphosa. So there is an incentive for those close to the former president to undermine the rule of Mr. Ramaphosa and frankly also the rule of law in the country. However, I think it's also important not to overstate the popular support for Mr. Zuma. While there may have been people close to him involved in the incitement and instigation of the violence, what we have seen amongst the thousands of people on the streets isn't necessarily a popular political uprising. But, but something has drawn them out into the streets in great numbers and in some cases with, with great violence. What, what exactly is driving that? Well, in South Africa, there's no shortage of dry kindling with which to start a conflagration. There is huge discontent in the country. South Africa has the highest official unemployment rate in the world. Inequality, both of income and wealth, is gaping. Many parts of the country go regularly without power and water. The police are a mix of incompetence and cruelty. And all of these factors have been worsened by the pandemic, which, if you believe the excess mortality figures, has killed almost 200,000 people. And what's being done to bring this week's violence under control? On Wednesday afternoon, the Defence Minister announced that 
up to 25,000 troops would be deployed to Hauteng and KwaZulu-Natal. This represents the biggest deployment of military force since the end of apartheid. That's the scale of the violence that we're talking about here. There are also some calls, including from business groups, for a state of emergency. This would be a big deal in democratic South Africa, given how the apartheid state used states of emergency to impose its rule and remove things like habeas corpus. It seems like the government's not going to do that, and it's going to see how these troops go, but everything is still on the table. But given this mix of motivations and and the fragmentation of of the unrest, do you think what the government is doing will bring things under control? I think, and I certainly hope, that it ultimately will. In Alexandra and Soweto, Johannesburg townships, the violence is much less today, and it was much less yesterday than it was on Monday and Tuesday. Parts of KwaZulu-Natal are still on fire, and that's where the troop deployment will be most important. But much of the damage has already been done. I mean, there's been thousands of businesses destroyed, and some of those firms' owners will probably not decide to reopen. They may take their money and go overseas. And investors looking at South Africa just see a scene which plays to all the worst stereotypes of the country, of chaos and looting and violence. And the cost of all this is going to be vast as well for public finances, which are already under strain. It costs a lot to rebuild infrastructure. More than anything else, though, the damage to physical infrastructure is one thing. It can ultimately be repaired, even at great cost. But the damage to the social fabric is something which is much harder to repair. And South Africa is a beautiful country, but it's also a fragile country. And episodes like this can potentially do great damage to what little trust is left amongst people here. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. This week, Israel became the first country in the world to offer a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech. The country began administering booster shots to adults with weak immune systems amid a spike in cases fueled by the more contagious Delta strain of the coronavirus. Daily infections are running at about 450, with the Delta variant making up some 90% of cases. Pfizer is hoping more and more countries will follow suit. In America, it's pushing for federal authorization for booster shots. The science on how much good third jabs will do is still being hammered out but several countries are rolling them out for different reasons. This week, the World Health Organization's Director General asked the world to think twice. While many countries haven't even started vaccinating, and another country has already vaccinated majority of its population, the two doses, and now moving to a third dose, which is the booster, it's really uh, not only disappointing, it's seriously disappointing. It it doesn't even make any sense. There are several reasons one might want to offer booster shots of COVID-19 vaccines. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. If you're a healthcare worker or you have a weakened immune system, 
you might want to have an extra dose to give you a bit of extra protection. Or if you had been vaccinated with a slightly less effective vaccine, such as one of the Chinese vaccines, it might be felt necessary to give your immunity an extra boost. And it's those kinds of rationales then that's driving the booster shots being rolled out in some countries already? Yeah, there are a lot of things going on with third shots. In countries that started early with the Chinese vaccines, there are particular concerns about the extent to which they're now protecting the elderly and the vulnerable. So the UAE and Bahrain are offering third shots. You can either get a third dose of the Chinese Sinopharm vaccine, which is what was widely used, or you can ask for the Pfizer And then in Thailand, there are third doses being offered to healthcare workers. And a shot of AstraZeneca is going to be given again to people who've had two doses of the Sinopharm vaccine. And this followed the finding that 600 healthcare workers who had had these Chinese vaccines had actually picked up COVID. What you have to remember is that healthcare workers have to work with very vulnerable patients. And even if they're not getting sick with COVID, if they're actually passing it on to their patients, that's going to be a problem. So you mentioned this is primarily a concern then with places where the Chinese vaccine has been the the go-to. What about countries such as Israel, America, where people have received, for instance, Pfizer or Moderna? Are third shots being thought about? Are they necessary in places like that? Probably not. Most scientists actually feel that third doses are not necessary at present. But however, Israel has started giving third shots of Pfizer, but only to those with serious pre-existing medical conditions, although they are weighing up whether to distribute them to other vulnerable groups, such as the elderly. Britain has outlined what a booster campaign would look like if it's needed, and it would start in September and it would start in the over 70s. But that decision just hasn't been taken. They're waiting for evidence that it's needed. And Pfizer is seeking authorization in America for booster shots and is making the case for them. But there's quite a lot of scepticism about this. Um, In fact, on Sunday, America's COVID czar, Anthony Fauci, told CBS that more data is needed for any formal recommendation. Certainly, it is entirely conceivable, maybe likely, that at some time we will need a boost. It may be differentially needed depending upon the age of individuals and their underlying conditions. Now, right now, what the CDC and the FDA said in a joint statement is that at this time, we don't see the need for it. And, you know, you have to understand that booster shots in rich countries are a huge commercial opportunity for Pfizer. And so what they would recommend is not necessarily what health systems will feel is a worthwhile purchase. So there's a tension there. But what about the Delta variant that is out and about now? Any variants that might be coming down the line? How much does that affect the calculus here? The Delta variant, the opinion by and large, is that all the Western vaccines provide you know, sufficiently good immunity to protect against the serious consequences of COVID. And although the transmission of the virus remains higher than we would perhaps like, that that's just something we're going to have to live with. With regards to variants in the future, all the pharmaceutical companies are planning variant vaccines, but it's really hard to say what's going to come before it comes. All that said, I mean, as time goes on, I think we should be confident, actually more confident, that we have vaccines that have provided us protection against everything that COVID has thrown at us so far. So maybe the vaccines that we have 
aren't good enough. And if our immunity does start to wane, maybe we will give booster shots, but maybe we can leave that till next year when the supply of vaccines is even better and when more people have had their first doses. And that qualifier there about who's been immunized so far must play into whether or not, you know, various jurisdictions just say, well, why not? A booster shot can't hurt. Yeah, vaccines urgently need to be given as first shots around the world. Only about a quarter of the world's population has received at least one dose. And normality means vaccinating everyone, not just triple jabbing a few rich people to be on the safe side. And that's why on Monday, Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization, was so critical of the push for booster shots. Instead of Moderna and Pfizer prioritizing the supply of vaccines as boosters to countries whose populations have relatively high coverage, we need them to go all out to channel supply to COVAX, the Africa Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, and low- and middle-income countries which have very low vaccine coverage. But let's be clear, he's not necessarily criticising third jabs given to healthcare workers where there are concerns about insufficient immune protection. He's just saying, you know, the firms like Pfizer and Moderna, who are pushing third doses to rich countries, you know, need to be making a priority to sell their vaccines to low and middle income countries. They're not making it a priority because they make more money selling to rich countries. But this debate is clearly heating up all over the world. I mean, where do you see this heading? I think in a lot of middle-income countries and low-income countries that have used the Chinese vaccines, the sort of limited amount of data, their weaker public health systems, you may see a lot of sort of of seat-of-the-pant decision-making being made on giving third jabs. With regards to the sort of rich countries with well-funded public health systems and good monitoring, all these decisions are going to be driven by hard data. Natasha, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, Jason. Thank you so much. Two of the most exciting events in America's Major League Baseball calendar took place this week, the Home Run Derby and the All-Star Game. But despite the draw of these annual fixtures, the popularity of the wider game seems to be on the wane. So there are a few challenges facing Major League Baseball right now. Aaron Braun is The Economist's Mountain West correspondent. And these these challenges haven't gone unnoticed by fans. I heard a lot about it from folks when I went to the Home Run Derby on Monday. It's dying slowly, so keep watching it before it goes away. Why do I say it's dying? The game's changing a lot. There's not fans, and there's only six teams that are good. But the biggest challenge that baseball is facing is one of demographics. Demographics in, in what sense? So younger people, and Gen Z in particular, seem much less drawn to the sport. In a poll in 2020, only 32% of Gen Z said they were avid or casual baseball fans, and that's compared with 50% of all adults. Why is that, though? Why isn't Generation Z, Generation Z interested? Well, games are much longer and less action-packed than they've ever been. The average length of a game in 2021 is three hours and 10 minutes, and that's tied for the longest ever. And if you think about football or basketball, you know, the ball is, is constantly in play. There's always action. So baseball is not 
really a constantly entertaining, fast-paced game like these other sports. Part of the reason why that's true, people think, is because pitching right now has just gotten so good. It's so powerful. And so we're seeing less hits on the field. And that means more strikeouts, more walks, and more home runs rather than the things that fans love to see, which are doubles and triples and stolen bases and anything that gets you action on the field. But that said, MLB is trying to change things. They're trying to shake things up and find ways to make the sport more entertaining. In, in what way? What's to be done? Well, there are a couple of things being tested and they're doing these tests in the minor leagues before they roll them out onto the big stage. But one of the things is an automatic strike zone. So rather than umpires calling balls and strikes from behind the plate, you would have kind of a robot telling you what is a ball and what is a strike. And then folks can adjust the strike zone season by season, depending on what they're seeing. And they think that will even out the playing field between pitchers and hitters and hopefully foster a little bit more action in the game. There are also some attempts to help make the sport a bit more personality driven like other major league sports. And the thinking behind that is that that will also help attract younger viewers. Also, MLB recently launched a contest to find TikTok creators to create short videos exclusively for MLB. And if you look at MLB's TikTok, you know, you can see They're really trying to reach younger audiences with the kind of videos that they're putting out there. And what's your view on whether all those things will work, making it younger, glitzier, TikTokier? I think there's real potential as a marketing strategy, but a lot of it will depend on what happens in the off season. The players' collective bargaining agreement with the owners expires on December 1st, and the relationship between the two groups is extremely acrimonious. If you think back to 2020, it was really, really difficult to get the sides to agree to even have a season at all last year. So going into negotiations, you've got that backdrop, and lots of folks think that we could see the first work stoppage since the 94 season. So as a baseball fan, I am really excited about what's next for the game, but it will all hinge on what happens in the offseason with the labor disputes. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.